Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in with us today on our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. Our podcasts are brought to you by the Military Child Education Coalition, whose work is focused on ensuring quality educational opportunities for all military-connected children affected by mobility, family separation, deployments, and transition. Here at the MSEC, we want to ensure that every military child is college, workforce, and life ready. In our podcast, we will share your stories as we talk to military service members, professionals, parents, and military kids. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you would like to hear more about. Welcome, everyone, to our MSEC podcast for the sake of the child. My name is Tara Gleason, and I'm an active-duty military spouse. I'm a parent to three military kids. And among other things, I'm also the podcast producer here at the Military Child Education Coalition, or MSEC. Today, we're going to be talking about selecting appropriate behavioral health settings for our highly mobile military kids. And joining us today as an expert in the field is Rob McCartney, the Chief Executive Officer at the Barry Robinson Center in Norfolk, Virginia. Good morning, and thank you, Rob, so much for being here today. Well, good morning, Tara, and uh, thank you for having me. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and explain what the Barry Robinson Center is? Sure. I guess when I tell people about me, I've been doing uh, mental health work for 36 years, social work, graduate from Michigan State University. When it comes to the work I'm doing at the center, I'm also the uh, grandfather of two dependent children who have uh, served with their dad who is uh, a Marine. And that's one of the reasons why I actually took the job here is to be close to them, to support them as they go through some challenges regarding post-deployment and uh, and injuries. The center itself has been around since 1933, started off as a orphanage and a trade school and has seen several renditions as it has morphed into a school for uh, wayward youth And then in the late 70s, it transformed into more of uh, a residential treatment center for kids with severe emotional and behavioral problems. And that is sort of what we have grown into today. Seven years ago, when I was asked to lead the center, we were not a TRICARE provider. Uh, One of my goals was to become a TRICARE provider and to have a program where if my grandchildren ever needed this level of care, I would sleep at night. So we put our application in, this is back in August of 2012, I took over, and we put our application in in November to become a TRICARE provider. Everybody said it would take about a year. We were approved in about a month, and for only 24 of our 72 beds, and TRICARE reached out to me, I think it was in February or March, and asked me to put the other beds online. So by May of 2013, all 72 beds were TRICARE-approved beds, and we started to serve military families as well as other families. And then somewhere about three or four years ago, uh, I was looking at the numbers and realized that 85% of the kids that we were providing care for were military-connected. So I made the decision we would go all in and be 100% military connected. And that has proved to be a very good nudge for us, allowed us to really focus on understanding military culture for all of our staff and to also uh, help with the different levels of, of care and treatment that the kids who are in need of our services are seeking. 
You mentioned some of the types of treatment that you offer. Can you talk about that? What kind of criteria are you looking for children to come to the Barry Robinson Center? Or what kind of sure. help do you offer? Well, I think to know that the kids that come to us have uh, some extreme challenges. Uh, almost all of them have had two or three acute psychiatric hospitalizations. There's issues with what we call mood instability, mood regulation. There are a lot of our kids have attention deficit disorder, uh, not your garden variety, but very severe ability to attend. We have a lot of kids who have uh, depression uh, and anxiety. And then we also, the military uh, as a cohort group, adopt more than others. So we have a lot of children who come to us who have adoption issues as well. So families who are uh, seeking this level of care have experienced a lack of success in outpatient treatment or in uh, the hospital setting. And they're looking for a more secure, intense, focused treatment. Some children may not fit the criteria to be served at your location, so can we shift gears a little bit and talk about what parents might look for in treatment facilities in general? So when families, they want to be able to understand how to pick a placement that's best for their child, so can you help us understand how not all residential treatment facilities are created equal, and what should caregivers look for when considering this level of care for their military child in particular? You talked about some of the specific issues that military children face separate from what their civilian peers face. I think the first thing to remember that when families are reaching out or at the point where they're seeking uh, this level of care, they're in crisis. Usually their child has been gone back to the acute hospital and there's a sense of hopelessness that goes on. Also, we know when folks are in a crisis mode, they become very dependent on their caregivers, uh, their psychiatrists that may be treating them, their social workers, their psychologists. And while I think that is critical, I think that parents need to also understand that that group is going to have a narrow view or understanding of what services there may be out in the, the community. And I mean by community, I mean the United States. So I think that parents need to become strong advocates for their child and need to really take time and look at their different potential placements. I would go online, tell parents to go online, look at Google ratings, look at the websites of the different programs, look at any feedback people have given, uh, reach out to others in the military who may have utilized residential services. I would also encourage parents to go visit the residential programming. We know a lot of blemishes can be found when you do a walkthrough. And when you do a walkthrough, you get the opportunity, one, to just get a sense of the physical plant, but you also get an idea of the people. You know, you look around to see if, uh, are the staff smiling? Uh, are the staff engaged? Are the kids smiling? You know, what's the interaction between the staff and the, the residents? What level of uh, transparency is there when, when parents are asking questions about the programming? So there's, there's some important questions to ask, and, and I think one of the things that if I was telling parents uh, about what to, to ask is that, you know, one of the first questions I would ask, are they a nonprofit or a for-profit 
uh, organization, and if they're for-profit, if they're investor-owned. That's not to say that being a nonprofit or for-profit is going to make you a good or bad residential program, but I think uh, it's important to know what may be the underlining focus of an organization. And don't get me wrong, we're, the center is a nonprofit organization, and we have to have really good financial stewardship. But uh, nonprofits don't have the burden of having to meet a certain profit margin to, you know, give back to their investors. And all of us who have investments, we have investments because we want to have a good return. And sometimes that can influence care. Not always. I know some very, very good for-profit companies that we actually partnership with. And I know some nonprofits that I wouldn't utilize. But again, it's one of those easy questions. You can usually find it if they're a 503C program. I would also ask the question, are they TRICARE approved? You know, how many beds are they approved for? You know, how long have they been seeing TRICARE kids? Other questions would be about, tell me about your child psychiatrist. Do you have child psychiatrists on staff? Are they full-time, part-time? Uh, what type of ratio do they have with their therapist? That'll give you a sense of the type of treatment. What type of services do they provide? You know, almost everybody's going to do a psychiatrist. They're going to have RNs. They're going to have uh, therapists. They're going to have group therapy, family therapy. But then look at other things like what kind of music therapy do they have? Do they have art therapy? Do they have an equine program? Uh, do they have uh, pet therapy? Um, do they have a relationship with a local pediatric group that is managing their uh, the medical concerns for the children? A lot of our kids who are coming to us, in addition to their mental health issues, they have some pretty significant medical challenges as well. And even looking at things like, do they have full-time dietitian or how are the dietary concerns addressed? Uh, is there something like Boy Scouts involved? The different programs that are not therapy but can be extremely therapeutic and very normalizing. I'll tell you a very quick story. I'd been here maybe about a year and our choir was performing and afterwards, I was standing in the aisle, and a mom came up to me and asked me if I was in charge. And <laughs> you never know what's going to come next. And uh, I said yes. And, and I said that her daughter came walking up, and she looked at me and just said, thank you. This is the first time my daughter has done something normal in three years, and she had been performing in the choir. And so mom started to to cheer up, I start to cheer up, and the girls start to cheer up. And I, and I think it's that, so while the choir was not therapy, very therapeutic. And for the parent to finally see her teenage daughter be a teenage kid and not be struggling with the severe depression and her suicidal ideations is a turning point because they see things differently. So it, it's that type of questions for parents to be, to be thinking about. And then the other piece has to do with the education piece. Um, I was just about to ask about that. So I found that unique too when I was reading more about your center. So yeah, please tell us more about that piece because I feel sometimes if those basic needs, what you're talking about, aren't being met, obviously children cannot learn. But I, I found it really unique some of, of what you were, what I learned about the Barry Robinson Center and how you educate children. So yes, please tell us more about that. Yeah, well, sure. At the Barry Robinson Center, you know, I think one of the things we have really focused on and, and pride ourselves on is our educational program. We understand, number one, kids coming to us, their diagnosis, uh, why they're coming to us is not an educational issue. 
but we do understand how important education is for these kids and their parents in the fact that you will see the behaviors in the school setting. So being successful in school is a critical piece for our kids. So we have a very robust education program. We have a lower school and an upper school. In the lower school, uh, we have about a one to four ratio with our teachers. Our younger kids, six to nine, six to 10, at that age when they're coming to us, they, they have some very, very challenging behaviors and serious issues. So we have a good ratio with that. And then we will focus on the special ed needs for them. For our older kids, our ratio is about one to eight. When we get our teenagers with us, they have a little more maturation, maybe some more frontal lobe development, so they have some, some impulse control and they can focus. But we also get kids who will range from IQs of 80 to IQs of 140. And to meet that need in that single classroom type setting, we have uh, leveraged technology. We have two online school programs that we use for our high school kids so that if somebody comes in as taking AP French, it's not the CEO who hasn't talked French in 30 years is trying to do the, the tutoring with them. And then we have a very robust online reading program for our younger kids. So we're able to develop individualized programs for the kids and, the, and then the folks who are working on their credits. We will actually work with the home school and they've been a few times where we've uh, tied into their online curriculum. Mm -hmm. So the resident's been able to stay current. We've actually had, a couple years ago, we had two young ladies who couldn't walk through graduation. And so we held their, because they were here, so we held the graduation with us here. And the first girl got up and they um, started talking about National Honor Society, full ride to a school, and everybody's, you know, applauding. And then they got into the wicked smart one. And uh, we had a young lady who was top 4%, 5% in the nation academically. And it was really sort of cool because the kids didn't realize this. Some did who'd been in school with her, but exactly how smart she was. But she was able to finish up her high school graduation, take a lot of advanced placement classes at a local college. We recently just had a young man who came to us who had finished high school. He was only 17. And so we partnered with our local community college to help him have classes he could take in curriculum. So I think that we don't want school to add to kids' stress, and sometimes we have to get everybody to back away from it. But at the same time, we don't want to have school not be addressed. That would just compound the problem when they got back home if they if were, they were yes. falling behind. And it sounds to me like this type of setting where it has that rich educational setting as well, it, it possibly can give them a, a leg up when they get back home. Yeah, it's certainly that's a, that's a good hope. As long as it, the big thing is we don't want them to get behind. What we often see is kids who are going through our program, there'll be a decision to homeschool or to access other online programs. The other big challenge, as the military folks know, right, you can, be, you can PCS to a, a new duty station and all of a sudden your kids have gone from block scheduling to semester scheduling. And we've done a really good job of, of being able to help parents during the transition when they're PCSing ensuring that the academic progress is not lost. And I think what that 
speaks to uh, is our awareness and understanding of the uniqueness of living a military lifestyle, both with the stresses it can have on the child, but also the family, and the big challenges that can be experienced with academics. You talked a little bit earlier about the importance of extracurricular activities when parents are looking for this type of treatment for their child, but can you talk a little bit about the population or the peer group, what that might look like depending on the type of residential treatment center a parent might decide to use? One of the unique things of the center, the Barry Robinson Center is 100% military connected. So we have kids who are active duty, uh, we have kids whose parents have retired and they may have served with, the, with mom or dad and clearly understanding that culture. What that has done for us is that kids will sit there and having their uh, informal discussions will talk about, oh, I was in Germany here. Were you there? Did you know this teacher? Did you know that teacher? Um, yes. How many times have you moved? Well, we moved 10 times. We moved 18 times. Or you can get into folks who may be in, in special ops who don't move as much, but then they'll get into the issue of, yeah, my dad's never home, um, but we stay put. Uh, sort of the same we see with our National Guard uh, families. So it, it's sort of a, a shared culture that these kids have with each other uh, and a shared appreciation. I'll give you an example. When we have our prayer services and the Boy Scouts present the flag, and we're doing the Pledge of Allegiance, yeah, I, all of our kids stand up and say the pledge, and they understand what that means and what the duty to their country means. And that is, I think, is unique when you have a cohort group that has all that similarities. The other thing we'll, they will see is that there'll be some diversity. So while there's a similarity which allows them to connect, there's a lot of differences. So we may have somebody who has been playing the cello for eight years, and then somebody who was an all-American swimmer. And often this group may be separated in the schools. They have the opportunity to learn something new about each other. And that's pretty cool to watch. Absolutely, that shared experiences and finding other people have maybe gone through some of what they'd been through as a military kid is really important. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between a locked residential versus an open or staff secure option, especially for someone like me? I'm, I'm kind of new to learning more about these type of options. Can you tell us more about that? I don't want to say that one is better than the other because there are some kids whose clinical presentation requires a certain different level. So if you think about an open setting, like the Barry Robinson Center, you come on campus, you're not gonna see fences. And in fact, when you come onto our campus, it looks like a private New England school. You'll see kids who are, you know, walking from the school to the cafeteria, like kids would normally walk on that. It's not a, a, a structured, regimented program. And there are some programs that their model is a little more regimented. Uh, I think we see more and more programs moving away from that as that people start to understand trauma-informed treatment. But there's a lot of rules. Uh, you get points as a point system. And you will also see probably it more locked down. So it may as well look like a, a detention facility. And, and that's why when I say parents need to go visit, because there may be a secure program that when you get on it doesn't have that feel to it. 
because mm-hmm. um, they may have they may have fences up, but they don't look like the typical fence. There's a program in Orlando that's La Amistad that's very good that way. And so I think you look at that physical uh, presentation. But I think also when you look at a secure unit, there is that tendency to be more rigid and behavioral focused. So I, I think the other question when you're talking about secure and structured uh, and open setting programs, I would also ask some questions about what's the clinical model and specifically asking, do they use a trauma-informed model? And my guess is everybody they talk to is going to say yes, but do a deeper dive and ask what that model is. And then, you know, get the name of the model and then go online and research it. Historically, residential programs, including the Barry Robinson Center when I got here, was focused on addressing the behavior they were seeing right then. The belief was if you could help the child develop appropriate behavior and follow rules in the residential program, that when they leave that they would transfer what they learned to the real world. It often was a flip of the coin if that were to happen because the focus was on teaching kids to follow rules rather than to helping kids develop the internal process for self-regulation to manage their own feelings. And so they became dependent on the structure of the program rather than growing their own internal strengths. So what we ended up having back then were kids who were really good residential kids, could get the points, get the levels, get what goes with the levels, and then they went home, and there's no home situation that's going to have that type of structure and point system. And so a lot of kids would fail because they weren't able to transition. The focus uh, for the Bay Robinson Center, we actually threw our point system out the window maybe three years ago, and the focus became more on the child's treatment plan as far as were they safe, were they engaged in treatment, as far as what they could do in earning their levels. And what we saw with that was just almost a total elimination of any restraints, you know, which is physical holds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw kids being more engaged, and we saw our staff being more engaged. Uh, we implemented a program called the Restorative Approach, which was a trauma-informed program based on relationships. And there's a saying, connection before correction, which is the whole thing of you want to have this relationship. And then when you have to do a correction with the child, they don't get angry with you or they're not going to, they'll listen. And you help them uh, navigate what they need to do to make amends, to to heal whatever relationship that they broke. It's a lot easier. It sounds uh, uh, easy and it's not. It's an ongoing process with these kids. Yeah, I was a school teacher and I feel like the same thing when when I was working with groups of students, sometimes you have to earn their trust first before and they would flat out tell me, Mrs. Gleason, I don't know you. I don't trust you. I don't t- trust grownups. And I and I would say to them, you know, I respect that and I will earn your trust. And we and it's amazing once that happens, once you build that relationship, exactly what you're saying. I've seen happen in the classroom where they will do anything for you and things that might happen in other classrooms weren't happening in in the classroom when I was there because like you said they wanted to maintain that relationship so I think it's super important yeah and one of the things I hit on uh, Tara that I don't want to skim over is the use of restraints and seclusions and intramuscular injections for behavioral control I think that when parents are 
talking to programs, one of the things they can simply ask is, do you use seclusion? Mm-hmm. Do you have seclusion rooms? When I got here seven years ago, the second week, I walked around with the staff and we took all the doors off the seclusion rooms. Mm-hmm. And they go, what are we going to do now? And I told them, I said, I'm not sure what you're going to do, but we're not going to lock kids in rooms anymore. And that was a standard practice for decades in residential programs. And it was only served to re-traumatize kids. And then the physical restraints and physical holds need to be discussed too. And it's even how many do they do a month. You know, the total number of minutes is what we measure in restraints. And once you start focusing on decreasing restraints and seclusion, you are you start to see, I think, the clinical model really take off. We haven't talked about this yet, but there's some diagnoses that require specialty programs. Can you talk a little bit about the value these offer versus a general program? And in what circumstances would that type of program be necessary? And and I think you bring up the sort of one of the things I often tell parents to look for is what's the niche? What's the clinical specialty of the program? Or do they believe they can be everything to everybody? And maybe a program can. I haven't met that program. For an example, in an open campus like the Barry Robinson Center, we're not going to be able to take somebody who is going to be uh, a runner. We take kids who have run, but when they come to us, they know I want to be here. I'm not going to run. So when you have somebody who is going to run, who has that level of impulsivity, they need to have a good clinical program that's more secure. Uh, You can also have children who have, uh, and teenagers who have eating disorders. And an eating disorder program is a very specialized treatment. And it's the need for all the staff to be on the same page is huge. Understanding each of our own body concepts, uh, words we use about body, words we use about food becomes critical. At a different lifetime, I worked with eating disorders and ran a program. And and so that's, that level is important. And you have some folks who come who have both neurological issues, maybe the child has a shunt still, as well as emotional problems. So finding that program that can address both the medical issue and the behavioral health issue becomes the key with that. And then you're going to have programs that are going to be geared toward working with sex offenders. You don't want to have sex offenders in the same population as non-sex offenders. Even though uh, every residential program works with kids who, some kids who have some sexual issues based on their own history of trauma and their development, it doesn't mean they're sex offenders or they're perpetrators with that. You know, and then the other part is that there's kids who are going to be more conduct disorder, more juvenile delinquent type kids who they're going to respond as well to a more open setting and may actually benefit from that more structured uh, environment, especially at the front end when they're having to learn to follow rules as that trust can be developed that you were talking about. So again, I think when you look at what's going on with a child and being able to meet those needs with the right program, we've had parents who've called us who've wanted their child here. And when we've done the uh, review, we've realized we are not the best place for them. We're flattered that they call us, they think highly of us, they want to utilize us, but we feel strongly our first responsibility is to find best care for the kids. So what the center does is we have one of our employees, Dr. Chuck Brooks, will work with the family to help them find that appropriate placement. Uh, When parents call us, uh, we know that um, uh, they've sought us out for a reason, 
so they have some level of trust in us. Our job at that point is to help them find the right placement so they don't feel, we don't leave families out in the cold. But again, it's when you're talking about the, the specialized treatment, it's some programs will work with kids who have IQs under 80, and that's all they will do. So we can help with that. Uh, we get calls sometimes from parents who now I consider them kind of the bubble kids, that they're over 17, but they're still military-dependent ID hold, card holders. Would parents be able to reach out to you, or, or can you help them in those scenarios? So say 18 to 23. Do you have uh, any advice for them? Yeah, there are some programs that are out there that will work with that age group. And again, Dr. Brooks is the one that uh, has that list and can help facilitate that, uh, that contact. Uh, what we're seeing is that there are more programs developing that service line. I think also looking at outpatient work, there's more partial hospitalization programs that are going online, more intensive outpatient programs that are going online. I actually think maybe down the road, the increased use of uh, uh, telehealth and even with uh, doing some more uh, go-to-meeting type of group therapies, we'll see a growth in that. But there are, there are there's, there's not a lot of them, but there are some programs that will work with you know, 18 to 21-year-olds. So you mentioned some folks there that can help in these situations. If military families want to know more about the Barry Robinson Center, how can they find out more information? How can they reach you or learn more about it? Certainly go on our website, you know, www.barryrobinson.org. And all of our information's up there. We actually have a really uh, great asset, Lisa Howard, who's our, our advocate. Uh, Lisa is currently an active duty military spouse. Uh, her son was with us uh, two different times. He is now 20 years old. Lisa's had, I think, maybe 10 moves. She's also an MSW, and she's just a great resource. And Certainly people can reach out to her or call her, and, uh, and her phone number is 757-893-2560, and her email is pretty straightforward. All of us are. Hers is lhoward at barryrobinson.org. And the second person is Dr. Uh, Chuck Brooks. Chuck, Dr. Brooks has been doing this work for uh, decades and knows a lot of programs in our nation. And uh, certainly reaching out to Dr. Brooks at cbrooks at barryrobinson.org or even on his cell, 757-618-3920. Finally, you know, certainly you can call our admissions department. Laura Cheney's our director of admissions. That number is 757-455-6138. And that's L. Cheney, C-H-A-N-E-Y, at barryrobinson.org. And finally, if people want to call me, I think everybody uh, in, in our community, in most military communities, have my business card. Uh, so uh, feel free to give me a call, 757 uh, at at org. Uh, we're more than happy to answer questions, to uh, help parents navigate the system of care. Um, as well as we do a lot of community presentations. Parents, if they have a need for us to come talk, I've been up to Fort Drum and, and has done a couple of presentations and all the way down to uh, Florida. And we were out in California last year to present to all the military psychiatrists. And we love talking about the Barry Robinson Center, but what we really like talking about is how we can help military-connected kids get service.
you've already shared some great stories, but this podcast is all about sharing stories. And I've heard you speak before and you send a message of hope and faith as a central theme, ensuring families that things can get better. Families who are considering a residential treatment for their children in crisis may be at a breaking point and desperate for hope. Do you have any final stories that you would like to share with our listeners? I do. And this is one that I never get through without crying. So you and the listeners hang out with, uh, hang in there with me. Let's go back three years. Um, we have a young lady that comes to us. She's an eighth grader. And dad's uh, deployed a lot. Mom has her own mental health challenges. Uh, brother is diagnosed with autism. She has some challenges. And she also had some real rough experiences at the school she was going to, where she had been bullied severely. And she had a very serious suicide attempt. You know, she, she could have, it was, it, for a minute, from my understanding, when I talked to medical personnel, it was very iffy if she was going to survive. So she came to us, and if you picture a very depressed girl with hair hanging over their face, the one thing this girl had going for her, she had played the trumpet for a long, long time. And so we move forward. She's been with us maybe six months. And we're having our uh, anniversary prayer service, which was on December 8th. And she had the opportunity to stand up in front of about 140 people. She also had a pretty tough anxiety disorder. And she, her hair was back. She stands up straight. Her instrument's out in front of her. And she played her solo and hit everything on key. And if you know much about playing musical instruments, if you don't have good air, you're going to come in flat. And she came down on top of each of her notes and did this beautiful job. And so those of us in the front row you know, obviously all teared up, and Dad was with us, and he did likewise. Um, I had the opportunity to come across this young lady when I was uh, at uh, visiting one of the bases out west, and she was doing okay. You know, uh, I don't want to say that she was doing great, but she was doing okay. And what we were able to do is give her a shot. And that's one of the stories that I, um, you know, when I'm wondering, you know, about my day, I just remember that. And if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you one more recent story. We had a young lady who graduated from us a couple years ago, and she came back to talk to our kids. She's currently a nursing student. Uh, carrying a heavy caseload, take work, work in two jobs, but anticipates getting her RN degree sometime in the next uh, two years. And she came and talked to our girls uh, to talk to them about hope and how this place can be helpful, despite what goes on within the family, that you don't have to be defined by anything else but except for what you want to do with life. And that was a very powerful presentation she gave to our kids. So that stuff, that's why I do what I get to do and why I smile when I talk about this place. It sounds like an amazing place. Thank you so much for 
talking with us today and sharing more information about this behavioral health services and residential treatment facilities. I know that I learned a great deal and I'm sure that our listeners did too. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and y'all come visit. Absolutely. If I'm down in the Norfolk area, I absolutely will will give you a call. I'd love to see it. And for those who are listening, we have a open invitation for anybody who wants to come and have a tour. Wonderful. Thanks again. Thank you. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to? I think one of the things the Barry Robinson Center does is we give hope to parents that while they haven't been successful in helping their child get better, when they come to us, there is that hope. And I think when kids start to leave us and do well and then fall apart, why they want to come back to us is because that's part of the hope mm-hmm. with that. Um, and that's one thing we can install with parents that this is not futile. You know, there's potential for change is if you don't have faith or some hope, I don't know how people get through. I want to thank you again for listening to our podcast for the sake of the child. We would like to invite you to visit our website at www.militarychild.org. Like the MSEC on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Please join us again next time as we share more stories that impact our military connected kids.